Chapter 19 of My Southern Home, or The South and Its People. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. My Southern Home, or The South and Its People, by William Wells Brown. Chapter 19 Spending part of the winter of 1880 in Tennessee, I began the study of the character of the people and their institutions. I soon learned that there existed an intense hatred on the part of the whites toward the colored population. Looking at the past, this was easily accounted for. The older whites, brought up in the lap of luxury, educated to believe themselves superior to the race under them, self-willed, arrogant, determined, skilled in the use of side-arms, wealthy, possessing the entire political control of the state, feeling themselves superior also to the citizens of the free states, this people was called upon to subjugate themselves to an ignorant, superstitious, and poverty-stricken race, a race without homes, or the means of obtaining them. To see the offices of state filled by men selected from this servile set made these whites feel themselves deeply degraded in the eyes of the world. Their power was gone, but their pride still remained. They submitted in silence, but bided their time, and said, Never mind, we'll yet make your hell a hot one. The blacks felt their importance saw their own power in national politics, were interviewed by obsequious and cringing white men from the North, men, many of them, far inferior, morally, to the Negro. Two-faced, second-class white men of the South, few in number, it is true, hung like leeches upon the blacks. Among the latter was a respectable proportion of freemen, free before the rebellion. These were comparatively well-educated. To these, and to the better class of freedmen, the country was to look for solid work. In the different state legislatures, the great battle was to be fought, and to these the interest of the South centered. All of the legislatures were composed mainly of colored men. The few whites that were there were not only no help to the blacks, but it would have been better for the character of the latter, and for the country at large, if most of them had been in some state prison. Colored men went into the legislatures somewhat as children go for the first time to a Sabbath school. They sat and waited to see the show. Many had been elected by constituencies of which not more than ten in a hundred could read the ballots they deposited, and a large number of these representatives could not write their own names. This was not their fault. Their want of education was attributable to the system of slavery through which they had passed, and the absence of the educated, intelligent whites of the South was not the fault of the colored men. This was a trying position for the recently enfranchised blacks, but nobly did they rise above the circumstances. The speeches made by some of these men exhibited a depth of thought flights of eloquence and civilized statesmanship that throw their former masters far in the background. 
Yet amongst the good done, bills were introduced and passed, giving state aid to unworthy objects, old, worn-out corporations regalvanized, bills for outrageous new frauds drawn up by white men and presented by blacks. Votes of both colors bought up, bills passed, money granted, and these ignorant men congratulated as statesmen. While this comedy of errors was being performed at the South and loudly applauded at the North, these very Northern men, who had yelled their throats sore, would have fainted at the idea of a Negro being elected a member of their own legislature. By and by came the reaction. The disfranchised whites of the South submitted, but complained. Northern men and women, the latter always the most influential, sympathized with the dog underneath. As the tide was turning, the white adventurers returned from the South with piles of greenbacks and said that they had been speculating cotton. But their neighbors knew that it was stolen, for they had been members of Southern legislatures. While Northern carpetbaggers were scudding off to their kennels with their ill-gotten gains, the Southern colored politicians were driving fast horses, their wives and their fine carriages, and men who five years before were working in the cotton field under the lash could now draw their checks for thousands. This extravagance of black men, followed by the heavy taxes, reminded the old Southerners of their defeat in the rebellion. It brought up thoughts of revenge. Northern sympathy emboldened them at the South, which resulted in the Ku Klux organizations and the reign of terror that has cursed the South ever since. The restoring of the rebels to power and the surrendering the colored people to them after using the latter in the war and at the ballot box creating an enmity between the races is the most barefaced ingratitude that history gives any account of. After all, the ten years of Negro legislation in the South challenges the profoundest study of mankind. History does not record a similar instance. Five millions of uneducated, degraded people, without any preparation whatever, set at liberty in a single day without shedding a drop of blood, burning a barn, or insulting a single female. They reconstructed the state governments that their masters had destroyed, became legislators, held state offices, and with all their blunders surpassed the whites that had preceded them. Future generations will marvel at the calm forbearance, good sense, and Christian zeal of the American Negro of the 19th century. Nothing has been left undone to cripple their energies, darken their minds, debase their moral sense, and obliterate all traces of their relationship to the rest of mankind. And yet how wonderfully they have sustained the mighty load of oppression under which they have groaned for thousands of years. After looking at the past history of both races, I could easily see the cause of the great antipathy of the white man to the black, here in Tennessee. This feeling was most forcibly illustrated by an incident that occurred one day while I was standing in front of the Knoxville house in Knoxville. A good-looking, well-dressed colored man approached a white man in a business-like manner, and began talking to him, but ere he had finished the question, the white raised his walking-stick, and with much force knocked off the black man's hat, and with an oath said, 
don't you know better than to speak to a white man with your hat on where's your manners the negro picked up his hat held it in his hand and resumed the conversation i inquired of the colored gentleman with whom i was talking who the parties were he replied the white man is a real estate dealer and the colored man is honorable mr blank ex-member of the general assembly this race feeling is still more forcibly set forth in the dastardly attack of john warren of huntingdon the wife of this ruffian while passing through one of the streets of that town was accidentally run against by miss florence hayes who offered ample apology and which would have been accepted by any well-bred lady however mrs warren would not be satisfied with anything less than the punishment of the young lady therefore the two-fisted coarse rough uncouth ex-slaveholder proceeded to miss hayes's residence gained admission and without a word of ceremony seized the young lady by the hair and began beating her with his fist and kicking her with his heavy boots not until his victim lay prostrate and senseless at his feet did this fiend cease his blows miss hayes was teaching school at huntingdon when this outrage was committed and so severe was the barbarous attack that she was compelled to return to her home in nashville where she was confined to her room for several weeks yet neither law nor public opinion could reach this monster a few days after the assault the following paragraph appeared in the Huntingdon Vindicator. The occurrences of the past two weeks in the town of Huntingdon should prove conclusively to the colored citizens that there is a certain line existing between themselves and the white people which they cannot cross with impunity. The incident which prompts us to write this article is the thrashing which a white gentleman administered to a colored woman last week with no wish to foster a spirit of lawlessness in this community but actuated by a desire to see the negro keep in his proper place we advise white men everywhere to stand up for their rights and in no case yield an inch to the encroachment of an inferior race stand up for their rights with this editor means for the white ruffianly coward to knock down every colored lady that does not give up the entire sidewalk to him or his wife it was my good fortune to meet on several occasions miss florence t hayes the young lady above alluded to and i never came in contact with a more retiring ladylike person in my life she is a student of tennessee central college where she bears an unstained reputation and is regarded by all who know her to possess intellectual gifts far superior to the average white young women of tennessee spending a night in the country we had just risen from the supper table when mine host said listen mingo is telling how he reconverted his daughter listen you'll hear a rich story and a true one mr mingo lived in the adjoining room yes mrs jones my daughter has been home visiting me and i had a mighty trial with her i can tell you what was the matter mr mingo inquired the visitor well you see fanny's been a-livin in philadelphy and she's a mighty changed woman in her ways 
when she come in the house, she run up to a mammy and say, Oh, ma, I'm exquisitely pleased to greet you. Then she run to me and said, Oh, pa, and kiss me. Well, that was all well enough, but to see as much as two yards of her dress a dragging behind her on the floor, it was too much, and it was silk, too. It made my heart ache. Says I, Fanny, you's very extravagant dragging all that silk on the floor in that way. Oh, says she, that's the fashion, pa. Then, you see, I were uneasy for her. I were afraid she'd fall, for she had on a pair of boots with the highest heels I ever see in my life, which made her walk as if she was walking on her toes. Then she were covered all over with ribbons and ruffles. When we sat down to dinner, Fanny ate with her fork, and when she see her sister put the knife in her mouth, she says, Don't put your knife in your mouth. That's vulgar. Next morning, she took out of her pocket some seeds and put them in a tin cup and poured boiling hot water on them. Says I, Fanny, is you sick and going to take some medicine? Oh, no, Pa. It's quince seed to make some gum stick em. What is that for, I asked. Why, Pa, it's to make Grecian waves on my forehead. Some call them scallops. We ladies in the city make them. You see, Pa, we comb our hair down in little waves, and the gum makes them stick close to the forehead. All the white ladies in the city wear them. It's all the fashion. Well, you see, Mrs. Jones, I could stand all that, but when we went to prayers, I expanded a lead in prayer. And when that gal got on her knees and took out of her pocket a gilt-edged book and read a prayer, then I were done. I asked myself, is it possible that my daughter has come to that? So when prayer were over, I said, Fanny, what kind of religion is that you's got? Said she, why, Paul, I am a Episcopian. What is that? I asked. That's the English church service. Then you's no more a Methodist? Oh, no, said she. To be a Episcopian is all the fashion. Stop, Mr. Mingo, said Mrs. Jones. What kind of religion is that? Is it Baptist? No, no, replied the old man. If it were Baptist, then I could have stood that, because Baptist religion would do when you can't get no better. For with all they faults, I believe a Baptist can get into heaven by a tight squeeze. Because, you see, Mrs. Jones, I is a Methodist, and I believes in old-time religion, and I wants my chillin' to meet me in heaven. So I just went right down on my knees and asked the Lord to show me my duty about Fanny, for I wanted to win her back to the old-time religion. Well, the Lord made it all plain to me. And following the Lord's message to me, I got right up and went out into the woods and cut some switches and put them in the barn. So I said to Fanny, Come, my daughter, out to the barn. I want to give you a present to take back to Philadelphia with you. Yes, Paul, said she, for she was a-fixin' to gum-stick em on her hair. So I went to the barn, and very soon out come Fanny. I just shut the door and fastened it, and took down my switches and asked her, what kind of religion is that you's got? Piscopian, Paul. Then I commenced, 
and I did give that gal such a whipping, and she cry out, Oh, Paul, oh, Paul, please stop, Paul. Then I ask her, What kind of religion you's got? Piscopian, said she. So I give her some more, and I ask her again, What kind of religion has you got? She said, Oh, Paul, oh, Paul, said I, Don't call me Paul, call me in the right way. Then she said, Oh, Daddy, oh, Daddy, I's a Methodist. I's got old-time religion. Please stop, but I'll never be Episcopian anymore. So you see, Mrs. Jones, I converted that gal right back to the old-time religion which is the best of all religion. Yes, the Lord answered my prayer that time, with the aid of the switches. Whether Mingo's conversion of his daughter kept her from joining the Episcopalians on her return to Philadelphia or not, I have not learned. End of chapter 19 Recording by James K. White Chula Vista